0: We will start, and uh, people who aren't here, those of you listening in, uh, there's a lot of you. So I'm curious why that is, but we'll resolve that another time. OK, uh, there's a question at the end of last lecture about uh, some of the terms that we were using and differences between what, was, uh, what I was using and what was in the book. So part of that, I'll just mention in case this is a recurring theme, is that the last time I taught this class, I was using a different book. Right, and so all my lecture notes are based on that. Um, so I'm sort of rearranging the order of the, the lectures and such. And also, I have to use a little bit different terminology because this book is attempting, or at least uh, states in the first chapter, that they're going to use the SI units and the SI symbols for all the quantities. Um, which I love the idea of using SI symbols and units, but the ones for optics tend to be not widely used in the field. So, for example, the SI unit of power is the watt, and the the standard symbol for that is phi, sub e. And I've never, ever seen that in the literature or in talks or workshops or discussions or classes. P is what people tend to use for power. Um, And so there are various symbols that we use in lieu of the SI units. Okay. So the question that came up involved the use of irradiance and intensity and I stated that both of those terms I'm going to use to refer to the power per unit area watts per meter squared and then I would use the symbol I to represent that. Okay so that that's true that's, that's how I use those terms and that's how they're commonly used. Um, the book however calls the irradiance E sub E because that's the SI symbol for it. And then it uses the term radiant intensity to be something different, which is not watts per meter squared, but watts per steradian. So it's like an angular intensity instead of a of an area intensity. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to restrict myself to using the term irradiance rather than intensity to avoid any confusion. However, if I do use the term intensity, unless I specifically say radiant intensity, then what I mean is watts per meter squared. I'm going to use that. The irradiance we're going to use a lot. The electric field we'll use a lot. Most of the other terms that are introduced in section 1.4 we're not going to be using very much or at all. Okay, so the radiance, the radiant intensity, uh, any of the luminous terms, we're not going to use. They're just not going to be relevant for us going forward. Okay, so speaking of going forward, when you get to Chapter 7 in the book, um, the notation switches, and they start using I for irradiance instead of E sub E. And I found this disclaimer in Chapter in section 7.1. They say, unfortunately, the standard symbol for irradiance is the same as that for the electric field, so to avoid confusion, we use the symbol I for irradiance. Which, I read that, and I'm like, that's what everybody already knows and everybody's already been doing. And I think it's kind of funny, because in section 1.4, they make this statement about how they're going to do this uh, great thing and use SI symbols and units. and They seem to have this attitude that they're above all those people who don't. And then they go on and they do what everybody else has been doing from the, from the beginning. So I hope that clears things up. When I use the letter I, I mean irradiance, watts per meter squared. I will try to say irradiance. If I slip and say intensity, I probably still mean irradiance. And if there's any doubt, just ask me. Okay, so today we're going to start geometrical optics. So geometrical optics means rays propagating through things. And there's two main laws that govern how those rays propagate. The law of reflection, which may seem a little bit... uh, overly formal to call this a law. It's sort of what we all know. Light bounces off flat objects and reflects at the mirror, at the, uh, the mirror or the reflection surface, whatever angle it came in at. And the law of refla- refraction, which is Snell's law. Okay, so we will derive these in two different ways using Huygens' principle and Fermat's principle, which are two, two guiding principles that are very useful for understanding how light propagates, neither of which, I don't quite say neither of which, but both of which have sort of been superseded by more modern techniques which aren't so easy to do mathematically. They're great for doing on the computer, but they, uh, these sort of like learning Newton's laws and Newton's form of gravitation. The true modern form of gravitation is general relativity, but nobody actually uses that unless they have to. So that's the same thing here. We're going to learn these, uh, these two varying techniques for looking at how light propagates and talk about some specific examples of how light propagates through different optics. So lenses, curved mirrors, things like that. Okay, so um, geometric optics, what is that? Um, and Why the term geometric? Why not just call this optics? Um, Does anybody know what the opposite of geometric optics is? Any thought? Physical optics? Yes, physical optics. Okay, and so the difference is that in geometric optics, we treat light as, being tra- as traveling along a ray. Okay, so that's, sort of, that's probably the picture that most people have of light before they learn much about it. it. Travels in a straight line from the source to wherever it's going. And so there's some consequences of this that turn out to be not quite physical. So one is that if light really does travel in straight lines as rays, then shadows should be one-to-one mappings of the obstruction. So we have light coming from the sun. Um, It goes through a tree. I should be able to look down on the ground and see sharp outlines of all the leaves. But that's not what you see. Does anybody know, has anybody noticed what you see when you look at the outline of the leaves on a tree in the shadow? Yeah, it's it's smoothed out. What you'll probably see is if some of the light's getting through the leaves, you'll just see circles, circles of light. There's a couple reasons for that. One is that the sun is not a point source. It has some distribution, so you're actually seeing an image of the sun, which would be interesting to look at during an eclipse. But another part of that is that there's diffraction. Diffraction is part of physical optics, and it's not accounted for in geometrical optics. So we ignore diffraction. So it has this non-physical consequence. Um, It also says that beams of light can propagate without diverging, which, again, means we're ignoring diffraction. So To pretty good approximation, you can treat a laser as being a beam that propagates as a ray. You can take a laser pointer and stand at the other end of the room and put a spot that's pretty small on the board over here. But it is diverging. And if you try to do that same trick over many kilometers, the spot will actually become very large. Okay, So there are instances where this has non physical consequences, and this is not a good enough way to deal with light, but it's also very useful for understanding some simple things like the law of reflection, the law of refraction, where we don't need to worry about um, those cases. Okay, so how do we distinguish between when we need to worry about diffraction and when we don't? Well, physical optics is the field that deals with diffraction. It treats light as being sort of a wavefront that <coughs> extends either infinitely or however long a particular wavefront. Uh, would extend in a particular apparatus and treats that wavefront as propagating as it goes through space and really doesn't look at a ray moving through space it looks at the entire wavefront and the idea is that one point on a wavefront can influence every point on a wavefront can influence the light at any later point okay and so some of the consequences are you have diffraction shadows don't have sharp edges um, beams of light diverge. Another consequence is to calculate anything, you need to do an integral over the whole wavefront. So it's not always as easy to calculate as what you might be able to do using uh, geometrical optics. Okay, so again, when do we have to make the distinguish? When do we have to distinguish between these two? And the uh, rule of thumb is when the size of any of your optics or any of the apertures or any of the things in your problem is comparable to a wavelength you need to deal with physical optics. Okay, So if you have large lenses, large windows that the light's going through, um, large spaces that you're dealing with, you can probably get away with using the uh, geometrical picture. So we'll see when we actually start doing physical optics, we'll come up with a more uh, strict criteria than that. But for now, um, we'll just use that as our rule of thumb. Okay, so let's start with something that is fairly obvious or hopefully is fairly obvious if you've chosen physics as your major um, something that we observe since you know we're a year old is that when light reflects off of something it bounces back with an angle that's the same as the angle it went in at Yes. OK, so that's a very good question. I may ask that as a homework question. I'm not going to give you the answer now. I will give you the answer, but not until I've had given everyone a chance to think about it. Okay. So we'll draw some ray diagrams, and I'll see if I can get that into a homework. If I can't, maybe I can squeeze it into an exam. OK, okay so let's say this is a mirror surface, or any reflecting surface. Um, at any point on the surface, we can describe the angle of the rays coming in and the angle of the rays that get reflected if we draw a normal to this surface. So if the surface is curved, the normal is going to be in different directions depending on where you look at the reflection. So over here, um, this surface is pretty horizontal, so the normal is pretty vertical. We measure the incident ray with respect to that normal. and We measure the reflected ray also with respect to the normal and our convention is that both of these angles will be taken as positive if they're on opposite sides of the normal. So I have the same diagram over here, just the surface is curved a little bit, so the normal's in slightly a different direction. Um, and if this is the case, the law of reflection just tells us that the incident angle equals the reflected angle. Okay, they have to be on opposite sides of the normal. Okay, So no surprises there. Um, But that's one of the laws. We're going to derive that in a few minutes. The other law that governs geometrical optics is Snell's law, or the law of refraction. It's nice to call it that, because then it complements the law of reflection. And that's what happens to light when it goes not uh, reflecting off of an interface, but transmitting through it. So uh, we should all know the formula for Snell's law from Physics 52. It depends on the index of refraction of the incident material, so that I represents incident material and n is our symbol for index of refraction and the index of refraction in the transmitted material n sub t and it relates the incident angle to the transmitted angle and again these are measured with respect to the normal and they're both considered positive when they're on opposite sides of the normal okay, so in this diagram here they're both positive positive. and time reversal symmetry tells me that if light going into the material bends in this way. If I send light out of the material, it should bend in the same way. So here's a diagram of that. And if I just interchange the t's and the i's, then this becomes my incident material. And this becomes my transmitted material. And you can see that the form of the equation is symmetric. So I can do that. Marie? Oh, I didn't... Yeah, um, this should be theta i and that should be theta t. Thanks. Okay, so those are the two laws. We're going to derive them twice. We're going to derive each one of them using Huygens' principle and each one of them using Fermat's principle. So part of that is just so you see the derivation, but part of it is practice for using these different principles. Okay, so Huygens' principle says consider every point on a wavefront as being a potential source of a secondary wavelet. And then all of those wavelets will add up at a later point in space and time to produce the new wavefront that's propagated some distance. So I can show you what this looks like. So here's a surface. Let's say this is um, a wavefront a wavefront of, uh, of light. You can see it's not a plane wave. It's not a uh, flat wavefront. So there's some curvature to this, some aberration. Now, I can imagine... Well, if I want to talk about rays, a ray is a direction that the light is propagating, and that's perpendicular to the wavefront. A wavefront is perpendicular to the direction of propagation, so... What direction is that for this wavefront? It's not really well defined. It depends on where you look. So over here, you could think of this part of the wavefront as propagating this way, and over here, this part is propagating that way, and this part is going this way, so it's kind of spreading out. Um, Let's see what happens. If we imagine a bunch of little point sources, that all lie along this wavefront, and we let each one of them produce a spherical wave starting at the same time. Those will be the Huygens wavelets, and as they propagate out, the sum of all those spherical waves produces the new wavefront. So, actually, this, this line that's tangent to all of those spherical wavelets is the new wavefront. And so you can sort of see that it did what we expected. Over here, um, it sort of propagated to the right, and over here, it sort of propagated to the left, and here, it sort of propagated straight up, and we get a curved wavefront. It's not exactly the same as our original wavefront. If you look, it's uh, it's not so obvious. It looks pretty similar, but if there was a sharp edge here, there would be a rounded edge over here. Okay, so the Huygens description actually accounts for this idea of physical optics and diffraction. It's probably not a surprise because it requires us to understand what's going on all over the entire wavefront. We're not just treating the light as propagating as rays. Yeah? So in the book where they picked points on the wavefront those are just arbitrary points? Yeah, I mean, if you were going to do this mathematically, you would integrate over every, you know, every point. But for, for uh, some simple calculations or for... Uh, illustrative purposes, you can just pick arbitrary points. You need to have enough arbitrary points that you sample the wavefront well. You don't want to leave out any strong features in the wavefront or you'll miss the effect that they have. So the figure in the book looks like this. Okay, and we're going to go through and use this figure to derive the law of reflection. Um, okay so let's look at what this figure shows it shows a couple rays reflecting off of a, of a flat surface so this ray, ray that we'll call ADM reflects ray BJN should be parallel to ADM everywhere okay, it starts off parallel it's reflecting off of the same surface just displaced in position so the output ray is parallel. So we can define the incident angle for this light as the angle from the normal to either of these rays. And likewise for the reflected angle, we take the normal to either of these rays. Now, we can use Huygens' principle to start with a wavefront here. A wavefront is perpendicular to the rays, or by definition, a ray is the direction the light propagates, which is perpendicular to the wavefront. Okay, So this dotted line represents an incident plane wave. And we can think about point sources at A and B. And if we let those spherical wavelets that they produce propagate for a length of time such that they reach this point, so that the wavelet produced at A just reaches the reflecting surface at point D then the spherical wave produced by B will have a radius that reaches out to point E. Okay, so we'll have, draw two circles. The tangent that connects them is this wave front from E to D. Okay, so that's Huygens' principle just showing propagation of a plane wave over a distance. And it does what we'd expect. We started with a plane wave. We have a plane wave that's propagated some distance. Okay, nothing interesting yet. Now, we'll think of this new wavefront that goes through D and E as having two point sources at D and E. And when the point source at D has propagated uh, to a distance such that the circle, that circular uh, wave, is at point M. It's also at point G down here. If it had kept going and there was no material here, it would be at point G. So there's a circle that goes through point G and point M that has its center at point D. Okay. Well, in that length of time, the circular wavefront that starts at point E would have gotten to point H. And I would have had a new wavefront that's tangent to those circles at H and G. But of course, that's not what happens. There's a mirror here. So the wavefront can't keep going. So instead, what I do is I let the circular wavefront produced by point E propagate to here at point J. And at that point, I consider this the source of a new wavelet that's going to continue from this point to point H. Okay, so I just break up the propagation from E to H into two steps. Okay. Well, the wavelet at J that propagates to H has propagated to N in that same length of time, that circular wave. Right, so there's a circle here that goes through H and goes through N. So now when I add up or look at the tangent to those wavefronts, I don't have this line going through G and H. Instead, I have a line going through M and N. And that's the reflected wavefront. Does that make sense? It's a little hard to show. If you draw all the circles, you just end up with a diagram with a ton of circles. If you try to animate it, it doesn't actually work much better. So with that diagram, then, it's just a matter of geometry to show that the incident angle equals the reflected angle. So we can go through the geometry. We'll start with uh, this angle here equals this angle there. Those are just uh, two parallel lines that cross. And then this angle is 90 degrees, the angle between the wavefront And the ray, by definition, is 90 degrees. And likewise, if this ray had continued propagating down here, there would have been a wave front here. So that angle would be 90 degrees. The distance from D to G is the same as the distance from D to M, because those are both points on a spherical wavelet produced at point D. Both equidistant. And so what that's saying is, these two triangles have the same, they share a common side, they have the same angles, and they share another side. So all the dimensions of these triangles are identical. These two triangles are identical. OK, so remember, this angle is equal to this angle. And this angle is equal to this angle. So this angle is equal to that angle. And then this angle is equal to that angle, because it's the same, same argument for this parallel ray. And so if this angle is equal to this angle, then this angle has to equal that angle. These two angles are complementary. Right? These two angles are complementary. So if this and this were the same, then this and this are the same. So the incident angle is the same as the reflected angle. Okay, so thrilling. We've proved something that we already knew. Okay. But we used this idea of these wave- wavelets to show that. Okay. We can do the same thing To verify Snell's Law or to prove Snell's Law. And in your notes, this is all messed up. So if you've got this printed out, you can can just cross all that out. Um, This is correct now in the board if you want to just make changes. One, two, three, four. There are four things that are wrong in there. These four. Okay, so the same idea. We've got um, some rays coming in, going through the material, and going down. Uh, There's three rays drawn here, but I'm only going to analyze two of them. Take out that center ray. We do the same type of argument. Um, first, we're going to relate the angles measured with respect to the normal to the angles with respect to the interface. Okay, so the incident angle here is the same as the angle between the wavefront where it intersects the interface and the interface. Okay, so the interface is perpendicular to the normal, and the wavefront perpendicular to the ray. So the angle between the ray and the normal is the same as the angle between the wavefront and the interface you can stare at that for a little while if you need to convince yourself of that. Likewise, for the transmitted angle, the transmitted angle is the same as this angle right here. Again, if you need to stare at it, one thing you can imagine is let these angles go to zero. So, For instance, the transmitted angle collapses to zero This angle here would have to collapse to zero. Okay, now I can write this length here, fi, in terms of di and this angle, sine theta. And that's important because this length. Remember, is the uh, is the length, or it's the radius of a spherical wave produced by a wavelet at point F as it propagates to I. In the time it takes that wavelet to propagate down there, there will be a wavelet produced at point D, which will also propagate, but it's not going to go as far into the material because the material has a higher index of refraction; light travels slower. So the light's not going to have traveled as far. So, if point M represents where the wavelet produced at D gets to in the time that the wavelet produced at F gets to I, then you can see that there's going to be uh, a transmitted wavefront which is no longer parallel to the incident wavefronts. Yes? Is the length of AC different from the length of Mi? Yes. Yeah, you can see it here. Mi is. Wider than AC, and that's a consequence when light goes into a material. If you send in a beam of light in the direction of the uh, in the plane of incidence, it gets distorted. It gets. That's it. Yep. Okay. So similar argument lets us calculate the length of DM in terms of di and sine theta t. Okay, So we know how long fi is, and we know how long dm is. And since we know that wavefront or wavelets produced along this wavefront got to points m and i at the same time, one from point f got to point i, the one from d got to point m, then we can relate the time it takes them um, you can say the times are equal, and relate them to those measurements of the distances. Okay, so if tau is the length of time that it takes the light to propagate from F to I, then I can say that this length FI is that time divided by how long, by the speed. Oh, that's backwards. That length of time times VI should be in the numerator, times the speed of light in the incident material. This final expression is correct, tau times c over ni. So the length of this line segment is the time it takes the light to propagate there times the speed. Distance is rate times time. And likewise, we'll get a similar expression for the length dm. And there's a similar error in the notes. So that's tau c over n sub t, the transmitted index. And so we have two different expressions for dm and two different expressions for fi. So what I'll do is I'll uh, take this expression for dm down here and plug it in there. This expression for fi, plug it in there. And then solve for di put it back in, and get a relationship. There's, the, uh, there's where everything goes. Um, get a relationship between the index and the angle, and the incident, and the transmitted materials. Okay, So physically, though, we can understand Snell's Law just in terms of this wavelet picture, where This wavelet produced at D is traveling more slowly in the material than it would be in free space. So this is that wavelet, and it's discontinuous across this boundary. So the wavefront in the boundary gets tilted. The wavefront would have been like this if the index of refraction in the material was the same as the incident index of refraction, but because it slows down the side that Got into the material first, was going slower, and the wavefront slowed down on that side. Any questions? Why should it the. Well, the angle of incidence is defined as the angle between the normal to the surface and the incident ray. So this is the definition of the incident angle. But, through geometry, we can show that it's also equal to this angle. Because this wavefront is perpendicular to this, uh, to, to this ray, and this surface is perpendicular to this normal. So we used Huygens' Principle to show the Law of Refraction and the Law of Reflection. Um, we'll sort of see Huygens' Principle again when we start doing diffraction. Okay, it's pretty much a method that's used for physical optics because it deals with the entire wavefront. Um, I just introduce it now because we can get some good practice on it using these simple laws. Um, Fermat's Principle is the one that we're going to use now that deals with light rays. So, what is a ray? Well, a ray is an infinitely thin line, so it's a line that is in the direction of light propagation. And at any point, the optical wavefront is going to be perpendicular to a ray. Okay, so, we already used those properties in those diagrams. So, array denotes the direction of radiant energy flow. Okay, that's true in an isotropic material, which is all we're going to deal with in this class. So, glass. Ankit, you know of any examples where the radiant flow is not in the direction of a ray? Uh, Can you think of an example where? Energy flows in a dir- different direction than the, the rays. Um, um, <coughs> so this is the case in an isotropic material. What's an example of an anisotropic material? A crystal. a crystal. Yeah. Okay. So this doesn't hold in crystals, but it holds in glass. Okay. And we're not going to do analysis of crystals in, in this class. Okay, if you want to do that, electro-optics, physics 208, is the class where we deal with that. Um, in any event, we will just treat rays as uh, propagating in the direction of the energy flow. So that picture we had of a wavefront propagating before, where we had all these wavelets, now we could just imagine they're being rays at every point along the wavefront. And if we wanted to figure out how the wavefront evolved, that's how you could do it. But we typically don't concern ourselves with wavefronts when we, when we talk about rays. OK, so what we just did is we used the wavefront to define how light propagated. Now we're going to use the rays to define how the light propagates instead. And the way we do that is with Fermat's principle. So Fermat's principle is the term in optics for a very general principle of uh, least action or, uh, or action minimization. And what it says is that light will take the shortest path, and I'm paraphrasing here, but light will take the shortest path from point A to point B. It won't take more distant path. Okay, a little more specifically, the path length, the optical path length, will be a local extremum. So local minimum, local maximum, or a point of inflection. You can phrase this in terms of lengths or travel times. So if we denote the travel time between point A and B by tau, we can relate that to the physical length L, the index of refraction, and the speed of light. So the speed of light is constant. So this term NL is what needs to be minimized, and we call that the optical path length. So we use the optical path length to represent the distance between two points not in terms of the physical distance, which is the length, but in terms of the distance seen by light, which is the length times any retardation it feels due to the material it's propagating through. Okay, so lots of examples of Fermat's principle. You can use it to understand, for example, this mirage you see on a hot road. the index of refraction of air is a function of temperature. Okay, and a higher temperature air is less dense and has a lower index of refraction. So can anyone explain why that accounts for the fact we see light reflecting off of the apparently reflecting off of the road here? It's acting kind of like a mirror but it's not actually reflecting off of the road. Let's say these are our headlights right here. Here's our car. And here's our eye. Here's the road. Now there's a temperature gradient on a hot day. The road's being heated up, so the air just over the surface of the road is very hot. As you get higher up, it's gonna be cooler. So there's this gradient light will take so again I'm going to paraphrase but the shortest path from the source to the detector and what is that shortest path? It's got to dip down it can actually travel faster down lower so it's faster for it to go lower and then come back up so the light does that. Yeah, you should just see everything uh, distorted. Now, what actually happens is up here, there's not so much of a gradient. OK, so what happens is the difference between light propagating along these different paths The local minimum for light, coming from here to here, there's two local minima. One is where it just goes straight through, and one is where it goes down far enough to experience this gradient. And since the light from the headlights is going in all directions, some of that light follows this local minimum, and some follows this local minimum. Okay, So these are all examples of this double sunset the same type of thing where you have a temperature gradient in the air and you can get two different paths that the light takes and you see two sunsets. Has anyone ever seen that? People, people I'm with always claim to see it. Like, oh, there it is, there it is. And I, I've never actually seen it but there's a photograph. Um, we, can describe, we can describe Snell's Law and we will do it this way but um, if you think about light propagating through, let's say, a, a glass window the light gets... Deviated as it goes through, because of Snell's law, it's bent towards the normal, and then it gets bent back out. It comes out parallel, but displaced from the original direction, and we can understand that in terms of Fermat's principle, that because this material has a higher index of refraction than the outside material, the light travels more slowly through it. So, in order to minimize the total travel time, it's faster for the light cut through and go to sharper angle. Okay, and we all follow Fermat's principle when we go home, right? The path we take to get home is the one that gets us there the fastest. Right? It's not always the most direct, but you know, if there's if there's a road that's fairly direct that you have to cross or right, that you have to go along, but it's really really trafficy, you might only go out, go along it for a short amount short distance and then get off of it. And that's essentially what this is doing. The light needs to go through this this highway. This highway has a lot of congestion, so it gets on, gets off as soon as it can. Okay, so that's all the sort of hand wavy. We're going to do the math for this in a second. Um, But the element that we're going to use a lot is uh, this lens, or a lens like this. And Fermat's principle governs the behavior of the lens. Um, The shape of a lens is such that the optical path length from an object to its image is the same, regardless of where the light hits the lens. All right, so you can see that in this picture, that the, the ray that goes directly from the object to the image goes through a larger portion of glass than a ray that spends a longer time in the air, because it's traveling a greater distance, but then less time in the glass, so it gets through that faster. That makes up for the fact that it spent longer time in the air and then ends up back here. So all of the light emitted by this object, which hits anywhere on this lens, can contribute to an image formed down here. So that's the physics. Let's go through the math for the law of reflection let's take two points A and B and look at a ray that goes from A reflects off of a mirror and then goes to B and let's not assume that we know anything about the law of reflection so we have two arbitrary and possibly different angles for the incident and reflected rays if the distance from A to B is L okay so L is all the way across and the distance measured from this point where the rays hit the mirror to A is x. That means the distance from B to this point is L minus x. Are you assuming that A be parallel to the mirror? Uh, sure. Yeah, I am. But of course, if they weren't, let's say B were up here, you could just redefine a point along the ray that's at the same height, and these angles wouldn't change. Okay, and we're going to assume that line between A and B is a height Y above the mirror. Okay, so that's completely general. And we can write out what the optical path length for those paths are. Okay, so the optical path length in air, where the index of refraction is 1, is just the physical length. And if I don't have any uh, change of index of material, then I only need to concern myself with the physical path length. And this length here is the hypotenuse of a triangle with base x and y. So it's the square root of x squared plus y squared. The length of this other ray is also the hypotenuse of a triangle. It has a, one side of L minus X and one side that's Y. So that's the hypotenuse of that triangle. This yes? Is o, what is yeah. Optical path length. Okay, so this is a, an expression for the optical path length that light would take if it traveled along these rays that we've drawn. Now, according to Fermat's principle, light will take the, that path if that's a local extremum. Okay, so what we need to do is vary that. So what we'll do is we'll imagine, if we know light's reflecting off of the mirror, but we don't know where, what we can do is vary the position where it reflects. So this position here, which is measured by x, we can allow to deviate. Essentially, let it move back and forth, cal- calculate the optical path length at each point, and find the minimum, or the maximum, or whatever extremum there is. Okay, and at that point, the derivative of the optical path length with respect to x should be 0. Right? Let me go ahead and draw out what the optical path length would look like as a function of x. Um, when x equals zero, we have this path. And when x equals l, we have this path, and those are the same lengths. Right? So it's gonna be symmetric. Between x equals zero and x equals l. And then as we get closer to the center, is the path length gonna be getting the total path length gonna be getting greater or shorter? It's going to be getting shorter. So imagine, for example, you had a string of fixed length between point A and B that just reached out to here. right? You stick a pencil there, and you swing it around. What you're going to actually trace out is an ellipse. right? And so when you're somewhere in the center, that string is longer than what's necessary to go just to the mirror and back. I don't know if that physical picture helps or not, um, but what we're going to expect is that somewhere in the center, just due to symmetry constraints, there should be a a local extremum and that should be a minimum. OK, so let's take the derivative of this with respect to x. So the derivative of this, I have x squared plus y squared to the 1 half, which gives me 1 half times x squared plus y squared to the minus 1 half. That's why that appears in the denominator, times the derivative of the inside, which is 2x. So the one-half times the two cancel, and I have the x on top. Likewise, I can take the derivative of the second term. I get the exact same thing, just plug in l minus x instead of x. I get the same function. There's my derivative. I'm going to set it equal to zero. And I can recognize, I can simplify that. If I recognize x over x squared plus y squared, that's this length divided by this hypotenuse. Well, that's the sine of a theta incident. So let me call this term sine theta incident. Likewise, L minus x is this term, this length. That's what's in the numerator. The denominator is the length of that ray. So this term here is sine theta r. Sine theta i minus sine theta r is the derivative, and that has to equal 0, which means theta in has to equal theta reflected. Okay, that occurs where x is equal to L over 2. So that follows the uh, diagram we had drawn. Yes? When you say x on that graph, do you mean the distance between and b, or do you mean a is at A is at x equals 0, B is at x equals L, and the point where the rays reflect off of the mirror is at x. Okay. Any other questions? What is where the distance is maximized? Well, that's a local minimum. Of if you look at all the different directions that the light can go. If you had an isotropic radiator, that's one possible direction. But there's another one over here that goes straight between them. We saw that with the car headlights, right? That's also a local minimum. So if you were to talk not in terms of X, but in terms of the angle of the light leaving ray A, or leaving point A, there's one minimum straight along L. There's another minimum when it's pointed down here. Actually, that's, that would be a maximum. That would be a maximum in terms of the angle. Um, no other angle actually has it going to point B. So this principle is used in a lot of physics. It's a variational principle. So we define the optical path length in terms of the index of refraction and the physical length that a trial ray takes. And then we look at small variations in that path and say that we have to choose um, the direction in which the uh, variations do not change that optical path. Another way of saying that we choose an uh, extremum. So this is analogous to methods used in mechanics, Lagrange's method. It's analogous to those used in quantum mechanics, Feynman's method. And another way of saying it is that um, if you have this condition met, then any rays which propagate with only a slight variation in direction are going to travel the same distance, because the change in the optical path length is zero as you vary some parameter. and So those rays add up in phase and constructively interfere with the incident ray. We'll talk about that description of it more when we do physical optics. OK, so let's use this formalism to describe Snell's law. Same type of setup, points A and B. A is now in air. B is in uh, some other material. I guess I've actually allowed the incident material to have an index that's not equal to 1 and same basic geometry. A is at x equals zero. The point where the rays intersect the the interface is at x, and that B has an x-coordinate of L. The height of A above the interface is y sub i. The height of B below the interface is y sub t. Okay, and then we define our angles in the usual way, the incident angle with respect to the normal, the transmitted angles with respect to the normal. So let's set up our equation for this. We have to write the optical path length from A to B. So last time, we didn't have to deal with the index of refraction because all the rays were in the same material. Here, that's not the case. Okay, so just like last time, the physical path from A to the point where the ray hits the interface is square root of x squared plus y squared. But now there's also the index of refraction that we need to account for in the optical path. And this really should be y sub i. It's not properly labeled. And then, likewise, the length, the optical path length for the ray that's in the glass or in the material is the hypotenuse of a triangle with sides l minus x and yt. So that's this term times the index in the glass. Yes. Okay, so we'll take the derivative of the optical path length with respect to the position at which the rays hit the interface. Okay, so with respect to x. So we get the same expression we had before. We just have now an index of refraction on each term and a different value for the heights. Otherwise, it looks, looks the same. And so we can make the same types of, uh, of simplifications, namely x over, x over the square root of y squared plus x squared is sine of the incident angle. Again, X divided by this length is the sine of this angle. So we make that substitution. We do the same thing for the other ray, L minus x over the square root. So this distance, L minus x, divided by that, that square root is this hypotenuse of this triangle. That gives us the sine of the transmitted angle. And I get this expression, which I have to set equal to 0 to find an extremum. And you recognize these as the terms in Snell's law. Ni sine theta i minus Nt sine theta t has to equal zero. So just rearranging that, we get the standard form for Snell's Law. Okay, so those are planar surfaces. Uh, We can use the same type of analysis to look at the shape of a surface and ask what shape is ideal for imaging, for example. It's something you want to do if you're setting up an optical system. You might want to take the light that's emitted at a certain point over here and focus it down over here. And we use interfaces between different materials to bend the light and the light going in different directions should get bent in different directions so that all the light that hits the interface ends up at our image point. So if what you want is all the light emitted from point A to get focused over here to point B, then you need some surface between them that causes every single path to have the same optical path length. And then all of those rays will be permitted. Okay, so clearly a planar surface is not, does not meet that criteria. You need something where if N2 is greater than N1, the rays that travel a greater distance in N1, travel a shorter distance in N2. Okay, So let's draw a surface. We'll define L1 as the distance from this vertex here to A. L2 will be from the vertex to point B. And at a height Y from that vertex, the deviation from a planar surface to our surface we'll call x sub y. So another way of saying that is here's the origin of my coordinate system right here. This point up here is at x, y. And we're going to solve for all points x of y, this function, that make this optical path length the same. So we're going to be finding an extremum of the... er, we're going to be finding a point where the derivative of the optical path length is zero, but it's not a local maximum and it's not a local minimum. It's actually an inflection point. OK, so we do the same type of analysis. We can write the path length from point A to this point XY as being L1 plus X. OK, that's the x-coordinate, or the x-distance from A to this point right here, plus y is the y-coordinate. So we add those up as vectors and get the um, hypotenuse of that triangle as the square root of the sum of the squares. Right, and that's all in Material 1, so it gets multiplied by N1. Do the same thing in Material 2, going from here to here. The difference now is that if, if this distance x was adding some distance in material 1, then it has to be subtracting some distance in material 2. Okay, so the, the distance along x from this point to b is L2 minus x. The height is still y. Okay, so here's my expression for the optical path line. So usually setting up these problems, the most important part is getting the optical path length expression correct. If you do that, you can minimize that. And in this case, if we take the derivative of this with respect to x, set it equal to 0, and then we solve for x of y, we get a shape like this, which is called a Cartesian oval. So Evidently, if you want to image, light from a point over here to a point over here in a different material, the interface should have this funky shape to it. It's shape eye, right? uh, no, it's not. Not exactly. Well, it's, if you're looking at this saying that looks like the shape of your, what you see for your eye, then uh, that's irrelevant. But the, the lens in your eye closely approximates that on axis right here, which is spherical. OK, so you can buy lenses that kind of look like this, that have this sort of funky shape. They don't have to go all the way around the back, because that's a mathematical solution, but not a physical one. Light never actually passes to that back surface. So you can buy lenses like this. They're fairly expensive, because that's not a very easy shape to make. And you're usually limited in materials, mostly to plastics. Because in order to make it, they generally need to mold it as opposed to machine it. If you actually had something machined, it would be very expensive and not very smooth. So, yes? In the previous slide, it looks like uh, it did not have a left, no, when you drew the, it did not look like it had left right symmetry. It doesn't. No. If you had a point on the right and you wanted to image it over here, the optimal surface would be inverted. Now, in practice, you can't draw a ray that reaches this external surface out here without first passing through this surface. So I say this is a mathematical solution, but in practice, everything from here on to the right is irrelevant. My other question is, uh, so this is a perfect image for that one point? Yes. No. If you had a different image distance, you would get... If you had a different object distance, you would get an image at a different location, but there would be aberrations on it. It wouldn't be perfect. So what's the big deal about uh, building these lenses? It have to be an exact distance. Well, for certain applications, you want minimal aberrations on your object, on your image, and you want maximum amount of image, of brightness. So you need a real optimal lens, and you can... Maybe put that lens on a translation stage and move it around so that you meet this specific criteria. But in practice, these aren't frequently used. They're called aspheric lenses. They're not spherical. Um, It turns out the alternative is spherical lenses, which are much easier to manufacture and uh, much more common. Okay, So if you look on axis, you can approximate this surface as a sphere. Of course, you can do that with any function. Its second derivative represents the curvature. The inverse of that is a radius of curvature of a sphere. If you neglect higher order terms, you can say that that surface is spherical close enough to the axis. So if you have a lens that might be only an inch in diameter, and you're imaging something that's two meters away, what that means is you only see a very close to on-axis um, portion of the lens in a sphere is a very close approximation to an aspherical surface. And that's typically what people use, is spherical lenses. It's easier to manufacture, um, easier to polish. You can make them out of just about any material. So we should understand what happens at a spherical surface. So let's use Fermat's principle. And let's get some relations for what happens when the object and image aren't at the exact locations that they may have been designed for. They're at arbitrary positions. So let's say we have a fixed radius of curvature for our spherical surface, and then say, as you change the image distance, or the object distance, S1, where will the image be? Where is S2? We'll do it the same method. We'll say, as a function of S1, where is, what value of S2 produces an optical path length that is an extremum. Okay, so this is going to involve more geometry. Just working through the uh, details of the diagram. So let's say we've got a surface with a given radius of curvature and we can describe a point at which our input ray intersects that surface as being some angle above the optical axis. So the optical axis is that line that connects A and B. So we're going to use that coordinate phi. It's going to turn out to simplify our math a little bit instead of using x and y. Okay, then we can write some expressions that are relevant for the optical path length. We need to determine the length of this ray, L1, and it's one side of a triangle. We know in terms of the uh, parameters in this problem, the length of this long side because that's S1, the distance from the vertex to my object, plus the radius of the curvature of this sphere. And then this angle I'm calling phi, so I can use the law of cosines to relate those things. Okay, so it's not a right triangle. so I can't use the trig functions. I can't use uh, the Pythagorean theorem. But I can say that the length of any given side squared is equal to the sum of the square of the other two sides, minus two, twice the product of those two lengths times the cosine of the angle between them. This is the generalized Pythagorean theorem. And so, if this isn't fresh in your mind, if you let phi, right here, equal 90 degrees, this becomes a right triangle. Cosine of phi, is 90 degrees, is zero, and you recover Pythagorean's theorem. This is the generalized version of that called the law of cosines. And now it's letting us get an expression for the length that the ray is in terms of all these other parameters that either I know or that I'm going to end up varying to do the uh, minimization of the optical path length. I can do that for both triangles that I have to determine the length of the two rays. So for L2, I've got a different triangle. It still is... uh, Triangle with the radius of curvature is one leg. L2 is the other leg, and now the distance along the optical axis from the center of curvature to the point is S2 minus R. Okay, so I have this expression using the law of cosines in here. Um, Remember, this angle here I was calling phi, so that is not part of my triangle. Instead, I have the um, pi minus phi. Is that called a supplementary angle? Anybody recall the supplementary angle to that? So I'm going to use cosine of pi minus phi. Well, um, cosine is the same. OK, so I've got a couple expressions for the lengths. I know the optical path length in terms of L1 and L2 is just N1 times L1 plus N2 times L2. Okay, So in principle, I can write out that optical path length in terms of these expressions and then take the derivative with respect to phi. There's a couple, couple ways I can simplify that math and I haven't shown the intermediate steps so I'll outline them here. Um, I've got the optical path length is N1 L1 plus N2 L2 But I've got expressions for L1 squared and L2 squared, right? So if L1 squared equals R squared plus S plus R squared plus or minus 2R S1 plus R cosine 5, I wanna eventually take the derivative of this expression. Rather than solving for l, plugging it in here, and then taking the derivative, I know that the derivative of the optical path length with respect to phi is just going to be n1 times the derivative of l1 with respect to phi plus n2 times the derivative of l2 with respect to phi. So I can compute these derivatives first and then plug them in to this expression. That's going to be a little easier. And rather than take the square root of both sides to solve for L1 and then take the derivative, I'll take the derivative of both sides. When I differentiate L1 squared, I get 2L1 DL1. When I differentiate the right side with respect to phi, or even easier, I can take the derivative with respect to cosine phi. I can let that be the variable that I differentiate with respect to. I can write this as... uh, minus 2r s1 plus r d cosine phi. And then solve for uh, dl d cosine phi. The two canceled. Oh, yeah, sorry. And I can plug that in up here. And if I want, I can minimize the optical path length instead of with respect to phi, but with respect to cosine phi. Or if I want to do it with respect to phi, I just need to convert this into a derivative with respect to phi, just get an extra sine phi on the end. Okay, so. What I calculated was this right here. There's the n1, which I have to include as well, n1 times that derivative. And I calculated it with respect to cosine phi. If I'd done it with respect to phi, there'd be this the derivative of cosine phi is minus sine. So I get a minus sine. I do that for both sides. And I get this expression here that has to equal 0. Well, you can see the signs cancel. So it doesn't matter whether I had done it the derivative with respect to cosine or with respect to phi. So the sines cancel. These r's cancel. And I get an expression in terms of the distances, S1 and L1. The indexes n1 and my fixed value for r. Okay. So I have this constraint. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to use what we call the paraxial wave approximation. What that is, is that's assuming that the, the light is um, at a shallow angle from the optical axis. Okay, So in my system, I have this spherical surface. There's a lot of ways of saying that. But essentially, any angle that hits the lens is going to be at a small angle with respect to the optical axis. Another way of saying that is the diameter of the lens is small compared to the image and object distances. And virtually everything we're going to do in the class is in the paraxial approximation. So what does that do for me? Well, it lets me simplify a couple things. Um, This length was L1 and this length was S1. And these are two legs of a triangle that is a very shallow triangle. So I'm going to approximate them as being the same. I can't do that before I take the derivative. If I do, I won't get the right, the right system because the change in these lengths, as I change phi, L changes, but S doesn't. So if I'm concerned about the change in the lengths, then there is a difference. But if I'm just concerned about the average lengths, they're about the same. And so I can plug in for L1. I can just plug in S1. S1 would be my object distance in this case. Okay, and it will have a negligible effect on the result. Um, Okay, so I do that. Setting this equation equal to zero and replacing the L1 and L2 with S1 and S2 gives me this relationship here, which I can rearrange to give this expression over here. I'll let you rearrange that on your own if you're interested in going through that last step of algebra. But this is a useful equation because on the right side, we've got things that are only dependent on our our interface. We've got the index of the material on both sides of the interface and the curvature of the interface. So the right side is entirely dependent on the material. The left side is dependent on where the object and image are going to be. So if S1 is your object distance and S2 is your image distance, This gives a relationship. If you plug in a given object distance, you can solve for where the image will be. Or if you need the image to be at a certain location, you can solve for where the object has to be. And when we neglect these higher order terms and say L1 equals S1, neglecting those um, is what allows us to have any given object produce an image. A ver- at a location. Uh, we, if we included these higher order terms, we wouldn't have had a solution that we could solve for the location of the image in terms of the object. Because there would only be one image location for one particular object location. That would be a function of the exact form of the interface. So yes. in doing the approximation, you're uh, ignoring the curvature of the lens, assuming that it's basically a plane? Yes, in terms of measuring how far away things are from the lens. But we can't do that in terms of measuring the optical path length, because the optical path length, um, those changes are significant, because we talk about the, uh, the, the change needing to be zero, and that difference uh, accounts for whether this is a lens or whether this is just a, a wall piece of glass. OK, so that's the equation for imaging at a spherical surface. What we're going to do next time is add another spherical surface. And if you have two surfaces, you have a lens. Right, right now, we just have light going from one material to the other. But typically, the material we go into then we then come back out of. We call that a lens. So we'll apply this twice. Um, and so just to give you a preview of what that's going to look like, we go through the diagram where we go through the material twice. And we'll generate a similar type of equation, which is the thin lens equation. And so I think you probably already know the thin lens equation, but you probably haven't seen this full derivation. OK, I will see you next week. Uh, Tuesday, the homework is due. So make sure you've found that and downloaded that.